Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Tuberculosis. It was the scourge of the 1900s, but is it still around? Who's at risk? Should we all be tested? Dr. Elizabeth McNeil, physician at the TB Control Branch, is here in the studio, and we're going to demystify the current TB guidelines and what to do if you have a positive test for TB. We'll be taking your calls at 941-3689 on Oahu, toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Dr. McNeil, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you very much. Happy to have you here. Now tell me, TB in the islands, is it on the rise? Do we have more than the mainland? We do have more than the mainland. Uh, Not in absolute numbers, but for our smaller population size, we rank up there at the top of having the most most active cases of TB. Although I think Alaska this past year beat us out with an outbreak, but normally we're number one. Not the kind of thing we want to be number one at. No, we want to change that. So you said the number of cases, not necessarily, but the number of cases based on the percentage of our population. That's right. So how many do we have active here? Over the last 10 years, we've kind of averaged about 117, 118 cases a year. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but compared number-wise to our population, what would it be in another state that is not top of the list? Well, sort of give you an idea, uh, across the, the rest of the United States, they'll, they have three cases of active TB for every 100,000 people in their population. That's average. We're closer to eight, eight and a half, so we're almost three times what, what the national average is. Why? Well, one thing is is that we do have a larger population of people who were born and raised in parts of the world where TB is more common. They probably get exposed in those countries. They move here to Hawaii, and they're fine. They don't have TB. They're not sick with TB. But as they get older, TB can become active in those people. So now where are these parts of the world where TB is a bigger problem? Well, it's it's in many parts of the world we think of as developing countries. So, and especially in other parts of the United States that have a large population of folks that are from Mexico. Mexico is one of the top countries. Uh, Philippines, Korea, China, uh, Vietnam. Uh, there's even folks that were raised in the former Soviet Union countries uh, where incidence of TB is very, very high. And then we also have a higher number of cases of TB coming from folks that are living in, in the other Pacific Islands, Micronesia and the Marshalls. So these are people who are coming. You said they're not sick now, but they've been exposed. What does that really mean? They, they've been exposed at some point. There's TB in their body, but it's not active. And then when they're older, it becomes active. How does that ha- happen? You know, it's real confusing because there aren't many diseases that do that. TB is very unique. Um, you don't get TB from just standing around people. You don't get TB from sharing a, a glass with them or sharing food with them. It's in the air. Somebody has to cough the germs up into the air. You have to breathe them into your lungs. The majority of people that are exposed to TB that way, they don't get sick right away. That germ gets absorbed by the body. It gets attacked by the immune system. The immune system kind of walls it off and holds it there, but the germs can stay alive. 
we had one lady um, who had tested positive on her skin test for TB infection and didn't, at that time, there was no preventive medicine. This is when she was in her 30s. When she turned 96 and needed screening for an adult uh, daycare program, she did have active TB disease. So the germ had stayed quiet in her body for over 60 years. And then as she got older and her immune system lost control of the bacteria, it began to grow and, and, and made her sick. And the way that they found out that she had active TB was that she was going into a care facility. They normally do a little test called a PPD. And she actually had had a history of a positive PPD, so we went ahead and did a chest X-ray. And on the X-ray, there was evidence of early TB disease in, on, in her lungs. So that's why if you have a positive PPD, you're often told, then go do an X-ray. And if your X-ray is clear, then you're told you're okay. You're told that you may have latent TB infection, and latent TB is that quiet, inactive TB. We sometimes say the TB germ is sleeping. Your body's controlling it. In that sort of situation, do you need to take medication? Well, it depends. This is uh, one of those things where probably decades ago we'd say, yep, you've got inactive TB, you've got latent TB, you need to take medication because your risk you have a risk of active TB in the future. Now we're getting a little cagier with that advice. The thing is, is that if you're doing skin tests on lots and lots of people who have never been exposed to TB, don't have the germ in their body, some of those skin tests are still going to be positive. The test is not a perfect test. So some of the folks that we're testing have a positive skin test, may not really have TB infection. And so in that case... Because they have the positive skin test right now, what would they be told to do? Well, they're still told that they need to make sure they don't have active TB, and that is the most important thing. And that's get a good symptom history, find out if there's any illnesses or problems or symptoms, and to get a chest X-ray. The X-ray helps us rule out active TB disease, but TB can go to other parts of the body as well, and that's why talking to your doctor about symptoms or other problems you have is important too. Where else does it go? It can go anywhere. Again, very unusual. It can go to bone. It can go even to the uterus and cause infertility. It can go to the brain. It can go to the, the sac outside of the brain, uh, causing meningitis. It can go to bone marrow, liver, abdomen, the sac that surrounds the lung and cause a pleural effusion, which is fluid pushing on the lung. It can even go to the sac around the heart. So it's an amazingly, uh, just an amazing bug. Now, when it goes to those other places, is that if you were exposed to somebody, you said through respiratory droplets or airborne, or they cough, and you happen to be in close quarters and you inhale it, does it travel to those other various locations then and your body keeps it in check? Or does it stay in the lungs and your body keeps it in check? Or maybe we don't know. Well, we don't know. We think that some people probably the infection at first may travel to some of those other areas. Um, but definitely when we see some people where maybe the germs in the lungs became active again and then it traveled to other places. So there's still a lot we don't know about it. What do we know about the tuberculum bacterium? It's called a mycobacteria. What exactly does that mean? Well, that's a group of bacteria, and this is interesting, too, because we're seeing people 
with initial tests that look sputum tests. So they cough up some some phlegm, and it's looked at underneath the microscope. And they're going, oh, you've got these bacteria that are staining red and that are growing this certain way. You may have TB, and yet this is a person who's born and raised in Hawaii, never left the state, never been around anybody. There are another, this this large group of bacteria that we used to think TB was really the only one that caused disease. Now we're finding out these other germs can also look like TB and cause disease similar to TB. And Hawaii is one of the states that has the highest numbers of these other infections as well. Those other ones are called non-tuberculous mycobacteria. So people might hear about MAI, mycobacterium avium intracellulare. Mm-hmm. They might hear about some other types of non-TB mycobacterial infections. Is it because our population is uniquely susceptible, or is it just because we have more of these non-TB mycobacterium around? What makes us have more of these than anywhere else? It may be the climate. And really, there's, again, TB has been around for so long, we've recognized it for Centuries, centuries, right. centuries thousands, thousands of years. years. Okay. But these other um, organisms, we're only starting to recognize disease that they cause, and we're starting to learn more about them. But in many cases, I, they appear to be more common in areas where it is warmer, Florida, Arizona, Hawaii, and that maybe our climate is contributing to some of this. Could some of those older infections that we assumed were TB actually have been some of these other mycobacterial infections? It's possible. Um, they're treated a little bit differently than, than TB is. Many of them are resistant to some of the standard TB drugs we use, but it's possible. And I guess at this point it doesn't matter if someone nowadays can be appropriately treated and diagnosed with the exact infection that they have. That's right. We have tests that we do now that actually look at the DNA of the bacteria to help tell us that this is TB uh, or one of these other germs like, uh, like avium. So we really, there's no mistaking it. This day and age, if you have TB, they can actually check DNA of the mycobacterium and tell you 100% for certain, listen, this is the DNA, we know it's TB. Or we know it's not. It's a yes. non-TB mycobacterium, we're certain. There, there you go, yeah. When people, let's let's just talk about the PPD. That's a test that a lot of people do. That's the uh, purified protein derivative. They're checking to see if someone's ever been exposed to tuberculosis. What is the process of a PPD and how is that helpful, if it is? Okay. Well, somebody who's been exposed to the TB germ, that's had the TB germ in their body and their immune system responding to that germ, when they're, when they're given one of those TB skin tests, that alerts the immune system, hey, there's some TB proteins here. You need to attack the site of that shot. And that gives you the red, itchy bump. You want to see a bump, not just redness. Now, the problem with the PPD is that the body's immune system, recognizing some of those other germs that we talked about, or having been stimulated because they got a BCG vaccine, not TB bacteria in those vaccines used in other countries, but something similar, will sometimes also get a red itchy bump with the PPD. 
TV so skin test. You could have somebody who really was exposed, or you could have someone who has a similar exposure to something else, mm-hmm. um, or you could just have somebody who, you know, for whatever reason, they're reacting and they don't have active TB. That's so correct. everybody, it seems to me that, you know, I get tested every six months. I work in a medical center. A lot of the nursing staff get tested every six months. If one of the patients is found to have active TB, everyone around that's been in contact with them gets retested. Are we testing the right people? Are we testing too many? Any student going to college these days needs to have their PPD tested. Are we doing too many? Well, we look at where are TB cases? Where do we want to focus our our resources in the state of Hawaii? And what they're seeing across the country, and we actually see even more so in Hawaii, is that Folks that are born and raised in the U.S. have a very low risk of having active TB disease. Now, there are some folks. We had a lady a few years back that was 88 years old from Idaho, grew, grew up in a time where TB was more common, and her TB became active uh, during her winter visit uh, to the Big Island. But for the most part, you know, we're not, you know, my my daughter, for example, born and raised in Arizona, has very, very low risk for having been exposed to TB, very unlikely to be a case in the future. So we're, we're testing all school children, no matter where they're from, no matter where they've traveled, and that's probably um, excessive. It would be nice to start to focus down on who really is at risk for TB and not necessarily screen fewer people, but screen more selectively. In that situation, then certain people in particular groups would need to be tested. Who are in these groups? Is that really the medical profession? Is it people who interact with individuals who might be positive? Who then should be screened? Well, the risk factors for being exposed, the biggest one in the U.S. is being born and raised in a country where TB is more common. We mentioned some of those. You know, that accounts for 90% of the TB cases that we see in Hawaii. Um, So if you're born elsewhere, that's your risk factor. That's your risk factor. That's the biggest risk factor. The other thing is foreign travel and not necessarily going on a bus tour of England. That's not what we're talking about. But somebody who's gone on a mission who spent extensive time in a community in the Philippines or in Korea or China or someplace where TB is more common, that's a risk factor. Folks that have been incarcerated or have been in congregate settings, places, shelters, for example, probably do have a risk similar to healthcare workers. We have an ongoing risk as well, given that we're going to be seeing sick people and some of those people might have TB. So that's really the select population where we should be implementing that. What about, you know, we always see, I always see a lot of people who are about to go into a nursing home, and so they need a what they call a two-step PPD. Why do they, why is that group at risk? Although you might have described that with your story. And also, why do two steps? Okay, that's a good question. We mentioned that the skin test sometimes is positive when you do not have TB infection. Well, Any test can do this, too. That's called a false positive, but there's also what's called a false negative test. The test doesn't show any swelling, or it shows a very small amount of swelling, a negative test result. That can happen in people that have rip-roaring TB disease 
or have an immune problem, or it's been decades since they've had a skin test, the body says, ah, TB's not a big deal. I'm not going to make as much, the immune system's not going to pay as much attention to it. So the first test is almost like a booster. Wake up immune system. Wake up, wake up. The second test is what the true reading is. So if you had an initial negative and a second one positive, you'd go with the second one. That's correct. Would you ever see the opposite, initial positive, second one negative? Yes, we do all the time. And then in that case, you treat it as the second one again? No. Well, it depends. We've, um, there's actually two solutions that are out there uh, to do TB skin testing, and they're actually both very good. But one of those, Aplasol, has a slightly greater number of false positive results. In other words, that cute little two-year-old entering Head Start who was born and raised here, no foreign travel, no exposure, gets a skin test with Aplasol that's positive. We wait a little bit. We repeat it with a different solution called Tubersol, and it comes up negative. And in that case, I'm comfortable with that negative reading saying this kid has no other risk factors. I think that that was a false positive with the aplosol. What if you're you're 90? If you're 90? I mean, if you're going into a nursing home, you mentioned the 96-year-old who had, you know, suddenly this tuberculosis that came back 60 years later or so. If you're going into a nursing home and you do your TB testing, your PPD testing, and you get a negative and then a positive or the outcarlet, a positive and the mm-hmm. negative, um, how would you interpret those? Would you go based on the age, somebody who's lived here in the islands their whole life but does have family from one of these developing countries, would you interpret it the same way? Would you do the repeat with the different solution? Well, and you might even say 90 years old, the immune system may not be really up to par, may not be really responding to the skin test like you would hope it would, and you may just want to get an X-ray. Just to make sure there's no active disease, I probably would not be offering a 90-year-old preventive medicine. And that's because the lifetime risk of somebody for having TB become active if they have latent disease is a 1 in 10 chance their whole life. The risk is great as the first two years the germ is in your body. Well, a 90-year-old with a history of a positive skin test and a negative x-ray probably has a very small risk of active TB in the next few years of their life, and I wouldn't, but they're they're more likely to have trouble with my medication than they are to have active TB disease. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what that medication is. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Elizabeth McNeil. She is our one of our tuberculosis physicians here in the state. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about the medication and about what to do if you've ever had a positive PPD. And will this be something that you have to be concerned about the rest of your life? If you have a question, you can join us at 941 3689, toll free from the neighbor islands. 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. U plus one equals light work. The greater the number of members, the lesser the burden on each individual member. In an act of enlightened self-interest, we invite you to join us for the plus one new member campaign. Here's how. Recruit just one person to become a new member of HPR. Then come to the plus one Powhana recording party on Friday, May 30th in the Atherton studio. Find more information on the support page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Whenever I told people about my father, I stressed his independence. 
his self-sufficiency, his forbearance. He worked in a factory. He worked in his garden. He read history books. A father-daughter story by Alice Monroe. This week on Selected Shorts from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m. following Travel with Rick Steves. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Elizabeth McNeil. She is one of the TB docs here in the state. We're talking about tuberculosis. If you or someone you love has ever had a positive PPD or if you wonder what is your risk if you've had one in the past with a negative x-ray and never needed any treatment, you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Before the break, we were talking about the elderly getting tested prior to going to care homes and why they need to do a two-step test, sort of a reminder step and make sure that they're okay. You mentioned that you do a, a chest x-ray to make sure they don't have any active TB because is that the only way they would transmit it? Yes. That, so if they had it in like a bone or somewhere else, they wouldn't. That's, that's right. You can't give it to somebody you else You can't give it way. to someone unless it's in your lungs and you're coughing up the germs. Yeah. So that's, that's why we do just an x-ray. Right. Now, certain people with certain medical conditions need to get tested. And we mentioned a couple of populations that really should be targeted for testing. What sort of medical conditions make you more likely to need to be concerned about TB? Well, the biggest one is having HIV infection or AIDS. That puts you at a risk for active TB of 10% every year. As opposed to 10% over a for lifetime. Your, over your lifetime. So that's, that's one of the biggest risks. Having diabetes increases your risk of active disease about three times. Being a smoker, one more reason to stop smoking, here it is, is TB. So your greater risk of getting infected with the germ, of having it sit in your lungs and and become infected, and you're at greater risk if you smoke of developing active TB. So I don't think there's any good reasons to smoke anymore. <laughs> you know, every time we're we on the show. Even, we don't even think you look cool anymore. Not so. even at all. So so no good reasons to smoke. But another reason not to, again, would be there the active TB. TB. And diabetes is something. We're going to talk about it next week. Yeah. But it's another issue that's really up and coming. We're seeing a lot more people with that. Yeah. So that's enough. But you mentioned HIV. Do we have a lot of... HIV or AIDS-related TB cases here in Hawaii compared to elsewhere, or no? We do not. And HIV infection was one of the reasons why TB made a huge comeback in the United States in the 80s and 90s. We had large, our TB rates went very, very high. And in Hawaii, we don't. It's usually no more than one, maybe two cases with HIV infection a year. And this year, we don't have anybody with HIV. So we've been lucky that way. It is, it's definitely treatable. It's curable. Uh, but sometimes our medications will interact with medicines that are prescribed for, for HIV and AIDS. And so it's kind of a juggling uh, thing. And sometimes, too, if people's immune systems are really hurting when their TB becomes active, as we treat them, their TB starts actually getting worse. Their symptoms become worse because their immune system starts to join in the fight. And we can see some very, very ill people sometimes. So it can be complicated. But can be treated. If but you're can be treated. treating the HIV or the AIDS and you're treating the TB, complicated but not, not impossible. No, not at all. 
other areas where HIV is more prevalent. I'm thinking of places like sub-Saharan Africa. They have a huge TB issue there yes, as well? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Because of presumably the HIV and AIDS rates there that make it harder for them to handle the exposure that they may have? Yes. Yes. So another area. I remember when I was in residency, I spent about six weeks in Zimbabwe in, in Africa, and their definition of the sputum-positive TB ward was put them downwind yeah. and make sure that everybody else is upwind from them. And I was always amazed that that was their only mechanism of control. But there they did something called DOT or directly observed therapy. So for those individuals who were sputum-positive um, or X-ray suspicious and sputum-pending, they would actually directly observe therapy every day. Do we do that here? Do we need to? Yes, we do, and I think we need to. Um, directly observe therapy, we actually take the medicine to the patient or the patient comes to us and we see them take the medication. Um, we're lucky. Hawaii has been very fortunate, and thanks, I thank our, our leaders in our health department and our, our legislature and governor as well to make sure that we have the funds to make DOT happen. There are a lot of states and counties over in the mainland that have had to cut back and try and guess who they need to do this directly observed therapy with. Countries that have no directly observed therapy are finding very, very poor cure rates. The TB comes back. It spreads to more people. And then they've also developing much, much higher rates of drug-resistant TB. Now, we haven't mentioned the medications yet. I think, I think we ought to. I remember once, you know, in medical school, one of, my, one of my classmates was positive, and they were told, you know, you have to do the old six months of Isonize and INH, and then, then, that, then you're done. And some people hear about three months accelerated treatment versus nine months. What is the current recommended guideline for treat, if you choose to treat, for treating somebody who's PPD positive, chest X-ray negative? Well, the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, still have INH or isoniazid as the first drug of choice for treating inactive TB. Nine months is the course for children. Nine months is still the recommended course for adults, although six months for adults is an option. Somebody with HIV really needs to be on it longer, needs to be on it for nine months. But a lot of programs, and we started doing this several years ago, have really been our first choice has been sort of what CDC lists as an optional uh, treatment, and that's using a drug called rifampin. What we found is that nine months is extremely hard to take a medication for which, you, you know, you have no symptoms. It causes lots of side effects as you get older. 35, 40, 50 years of age, you start having trouble with this medicine. Some of those side effects are even life-threatening. Rifampin is great. It's four months for all adults. It's six months for children. But it's much easier. It's shorter, better tolerated. I think so. It's quite a bit more expensive. But when you look at, they've actually done some studies looking at repeat visits, um, completion rates, laboratory monitoring for side effects, uh, liver function tests, and things like that, it's actually cheaper to use the rifampin, even though the drug costs more because you're getting people done and you're finishing the course. You're not having to restart over and over and over again. Uh, you're not causing as many side effects or problems, and you're finishing them up. 
So it's easier. It's easier. Well tolerated. And is that currently the standard of what we're doing here in Hawaii? That's that's usually our first choice. Um, the other thing that makes it one of our first choices is that a lot of TB in Hawaii and other parts of the world is becoming resistant to INH. So if you were exposed to an INH-resistant bug, and the younger you are, the more likely that's the case, then taking nine months, taking years of INH is not going to help you. It's not going to prevent your TB from becoming active later, but rifampin will work. There are, is some rifampin resistance out there, but the numbers are very low. So these days, that's really a better option for, for if you have been exposed and are not having active tuberculosis. That's right. What if you have active tuberculosis? What is our treatment regimen then? You mentioned DNA can be checked. I'm imagining resistance patterns can be checked. You'll find out if a particular TB is resistant to INH or resistant to rifampin. What are some of the other medications people can use? Well, the standard treatment is to come in like like the Marines. We, <laughs> you come in with four drugs. That's because TB has a tendency, if you, if you only give one or two drugs, developing resistance to those drugs. So one big thing that's very important before we start anyone on even preventive treatment is making sure they don't have active TB. If we're treating them for active TB with only one drug, we're, we're not really treating them. We're not treating them. In fact, we're creating a problem. So that's the first thing. But standardly, the standard regimen is four drugs. INH is one of those, rifampin, ethambutol, and pyrazinamide. Most of those drugs nobody's ever heard of. They don't. Tr- we don't use them for a lot of other things, but they are the standard. They're the four probably most effective drugs that we have to treat TB, and they help us prevent the germ from becoming resistant during that treatment to any one of those drugs. Are they all once a day, more than once a day? Well, there's there's a whole bunch of different ways that people can use them, and we all have kind of our, our prejudice. Usually, that's a fistful of medicine to start off with, depending on how big you are. It depends, you know, that, that's going to determine how many pills you're taking and if you have other health problems like kidney disease. So... I like to start off with giving the medicine once a day, but we give folks the weekend off, so five days a week. At some point, usually after about two months, we drop two of those drugs if the TB germ is fully drug-susceptible, no resistance. And And you would find that out because you would start them on the medication and then do the resistance patterns. Don't wait for treatment. Come in with all four. Right. Then when you get the resistance pattern, you can delete two of those. Correct. And after one of the medicines works really well to kind of knock down the TB germ, reduce the numbers quickly, get people to feeling better. And the other thing that as a public health doctor I'm interested in, get them from being contagious as quickly as possible. And that's that pyrazinamide. And there's a lot of side effects with the medicine. It's not the greatest thing on your stomach. It's not the greatest thing for your appetite. There can be some other problems with medicine. I had a patient who recently had an allergic reaction to medicine that we gave him. So I think a lot of folks, especially from countries where uh, legally people can be detained, former Soviet Union would detain people um, if they had a communicable disease, lock them up, treat them. So I think some folks from other parts of the world see directly observed therapy as punishment. You've got TB, bad person. We're going to check on you every day and make sure you take your medicine. 
And some people feel tremendous shame of having TB. We didn't grow up with this, you and I, but folks that are from countries where I remember in Mexico, you call somebody a bad name, you can call them a person with TB. That's a huge insult. So there's still a shame, and they feel, again, kind of shameful or fearful to have somebody in a state vehicle show up at their home with medications. What's the landlord going to think? What are my neighbors going to think? So what I, what I tell people and and this is this is true is directly observed therapy is state of the art i picked out my orthopedic surgeon very carefully so i could get the state of the art hip replacement as you know well this is the state of the art some places don't have the money to do it or the manpower to do it but we we do in hawaii and we monitor those folks very closely how is their illness doing how are they coping with the disease? How are the family members coping with the disease? What are the questions and issues that come up while you're on therapy? And we can just take much, much better care of people. It's the Mercedes-Benz of treatment. Um, and it's the way it should be done. Well, and it certainly makes it a lot easier for people to accept that. Um, and I'm curious, you mentioned family members. If you have someone in your household who is determined to have active tuberculosis. What does the family do if that person is on treatment with maybe the four drugs down to the two drugs and luckily once a day, thus it makes it easier for the directly observed therapy. But what do the family members do? Do they also start treatment for prevention or do they get tested, x-rays, et cetera? What is the risk for them? Well, the risk is, is high. And, and in fact, those are the folks that I would really like us to focus on treating for latent disease. Your risk is much, much higher of truly having TB infection with a positive skin test when you've had somebody in your household or your family with active TB, and you're much greater risk of going on to active disease. Kind of think about it as you had a greater chance of breathing in a lot more bugs than somebody else who wasn't living with someone. Fortunately, medicine, getting that person treated, reduces the chance that they pass on the germ very quickly. Most people are no longer contagious after one week. Some people with really big uh, holes in their lungs, coughing up lots of germs, after about two or three weeks, they're no longer contagious. But we do. We want to look at everybody in the household, talk to them, screen them initially, And there's a couple of groups of folks where we start them on preventive medicine even when we don't know that they have a TB infection. So somebody whose immune system is compromised, like if somebody in the household had AIDS, or a child under five years of age. Children can get the germ in their body and get sick from it before their skin test will ever show it's positive. So we start those folks on TB treatment from the beginning. Once we, again, we make sure that they don't have active disease, we do that x-ray first. And if the x-ray is clear, then we start them on preventive medicine. Then we go in 8 to 12 weeks after that person is no longer contagious. It takes that time for the body to develop the response on the skin test, we go back and we test that whole family again if they were initially negative. If the young kids stay negative, we stop their medicine at that point. So there really is a method to going in, identifying if a family member has it, 
all those close contacts, they will be addressed. They will have testing done periodically a few weeks after this whole process gets started. And if they're negative, then they can feel comfortable. Right. Now, you know, a couple of people might wonder, could you get TB from someone on the bus? I mean, if you were on the bus and there was someone there who had TB that was not yet diagnosed, maybe they are homeless or maybe they're just not in the medical system. How easy is it to get it from someone in a closed quarter air conditioning environment? We talked about getting it in a family and you mentioned a lot more exposure. You're sharing a lot more air. What about in a closed quarter environment? Is that a risk? It's a risk, but it's a small risk. Very small. Yeah. For example, uh, airplane travel. People always worry about being on the airplane with somebody who has active TB. And really, they've shown very, very little TB passing from that one passenger to other passengers. They have kind of, they won't even look at flights that are uh, less than eight hours long. And only the people next to the passenger and the row in front, the row behind. So if you're on a bus with a bit more fresh air coming in, it's even even less of a chance. Um, can't say no chance at all, but again, it's small. And what we've seen here in Hawaii is is that if, if it were being passed on the bus, then we would be seeing um, different figures here. We would be seeing more people who were born and raised in Hawaii without foreign travel, and we don't see that. I do see cases, um, secondary transmission cases, where it's gone from that initial person to somebody else, their family members. So um, it's not unusual. I'll get a new patient, and they'll go, oh, yeah, yeah. My dad was in Liahi 30 years ago. Yeah, I didn't really take that medicine that you gave me. And, yeah, now they've got the active, active TB. So that actually, if you were born and raised here and you have family members who maybe were at Liahi at some point, here you are growing up later, and that's where you could be born and raised here. But, and, you but you're an anomaly contact, yeah. with a yeah. family family contact. Now, Liahi these days, it's not a TB sanitarium anymore. Well, it still is. Again. Exclusively? Because they <laughs> no. have, I didn't think it's. Okay. No, that's just. There's uh, they, one area, okay. Yeah. But they do have, they have a fabulous, very well-rated nursing facility yes. now. They were yes, rated they extremely high for mm-hmm. their quality of care a couple of years back. So, But they still do have that TB area at Liahi. We still have the ability to hospitalize up to four people in uh, what's called negative airflow. In other words, the air goes outside where the, the germ dies. It doesn't get transferred into the floor to expose other people in the hospital. Very safe. And we, we have people there that maybe can't take care of themselves. They need some assistance, but they're contagious. Uh, or they have no place else to go and not and and nobody else to help them out for a while. So while they're contagious, we can isolate them there in that facility. And that's been that's been wonderful. And we really appreciate Liahi uh, having that available for us. It's something that we need to have on all of our neighbor islands as well. Doesn't happen very often. Uh, we don't have anybody in there right now, but um, but. But when we need it, it's there, and and we're very thankful for that. 
All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Elizabeth McNeil. She is our TB doc here on Oahu, but also taking care of all the neighbor islands as well. We're talking about tuberculosis. And if you or a loved one has a question about maybe somebody who was in Liahi years back and you want to know what your risk is, you can always join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. 3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. New Letters on the Air presents A Call to Words, Veterans and Why They Write, with poet Bill Bauer in his book Last Lambs, New and Selected Poems of Vietnam. When you're in a war, that's the ocean you're swimming in. Those are the poems that you meet. You don't meet the colorful fish in the ocean. You meet those things that I've written about. Poets Bill Bauer and H.C. Palmer, next time on New Letters on the Air. Tuesday evening at 6.30. I'm Ryan Ozawa. And I'm Bert Lum. Next time on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll learn about Hawaii's biotech industry through the work being done by two pharmaceutical companies. We'll talk to Cardax Pharmaceuticals and Pono Pharma about the benefits and challenges facing their companies here in Hawaii. That's next time on Bite Marks Cafe, Wednesday at 5. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Elizabeth McNeil. She's a physician at the TB Control Branch, and we are talking about tuberculosis. If you've got a question on your mind about TB, maybe your auntie or grandmother used to be at Liahi and you want to know what your risk is, you can give us a holler at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Before the break, we were talking about Liahi's service that is available for those people who need to be hospitalized and need to be treated in that directly observed setting. You mentioned a negative pressure isolation room. And so when the air comes in, any infected air goes out. And how is that not a problem for the neighboring community? It's just when TB hits the air, it's it's somehow not lethal any further? Or how yeah, does that work? It's diluted and it and it dies. So, yeah, the risk is is not there. So the neighbors don't have to worry. Right. And in fact, you know, just open for I think one reason why we don't see as much case cases, uh, for example, associated with shelters like they are in some of the other communities is that everything is open to the air. We have a lot more fresh air ventilation in in, in a lot of our homes and in our facilities. Um there was a period of time where, uh, well, actually, even now, it, we have a sputum collection room where we collect the phlegm. People cough up the phlegm. While they're doing that, they're getting a lot of germs into the air, or potentially a lot of germs. That room is also connected outside, negative airflow. Uh, but if that room is busy and we've got some other patients that we need to test, we go outside. We have them cough outside. And none of our staff has ever caught TB by helping a person cough up phlegm out of doors. That fresh air um, helps dilute the germ out, so there's much less risk. So somebody walking in the park, even on the buses like we talked about, very, very small risk of catching TB from that kind of exposure. All right. We've got a caller on the line. We have Sarah on the line from Manoa. Sarah, welcome to The Body Show. Hi, thanks. Um, I am wondering if perhaps people knew my medical history, if a doctor might have suggested that I have some kind of treatment 
since I worked in a medical clinic about 40 years ago. Prior to that, I always got a negative skin test subsequent to that job of about a year. And during that time, a lot of people coughed over my desk. I was at a reception desk at a large clinic. Um, After that, I've always had a positive skin test, so whenever I need a TB clearance, I have to have a chest X-ray. And following my open-heart surgery about two and a half years ago, Mm -hmm. I had major pleural effusion. Mm -hmm. I got tapped through my back eight Mm. times. And um, could there have been any connection to the fact that I test positive for a TB skin test? Or is it probably not related? It's probably not related, um, okay, thinking about your yeah. surgery, but, you know, TB can cause a pleural effusion, and, and that's the fluid that collects between oh, the chest. I know, I know yeah. about it all too much. Oh, I know. It pushes on the lungs. You can't breathe well. It hurts like heck, yeah. and and it can be tuberculosis, and sometimes it's hard to make the diagnosis because there won't be a lot of germs in that fluid that they pull out. But it is, no. that is one way TB can show up. It probably was just, yeah. yeah. So often it's oh. a marvel I don't glow. <laughs> oh, it's hard. It's hard to leave the fluid in there, and that's why they like to take it out. But it's, uh, but you really went through the ringer on that. Oh, well, I'm so I was, sorry. I was glad not to have major surgery for that. I yeah. opted to have it repeatedly. I didn't mind having thoracentesis. I, I felt so much better afterwards each time. Yeah. And it kept getting better, and I kept checking with my pulmonologist, mm-hmm. and it's it resolved. Okay. And so you're, I, but I'd kind of forgotten about the fact that I have tested positive for TB skin tests all these years. Right. Well, and, and sometimes, you know, it, it does get missed, although I, I'm really lucky to work with the community of doctors here. Most of them are thinking TB. Um, they get right on it, and I've been very, very impressed. So mm-hmm. um, I would I would bet that they, they looked at that, and they probably got that, got that fluid and sent it for testing. They probably sent it for a regular bacteria as well as for TB. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm fine now, and well, my birth defect was found and corrected when I was oh. two years old. Nobody knew I was born with a bicuspid aortic valve. Oh my goodness! So, what amazing. Okay. Well, it's a very interesting discussion you're having. I won't worry about having my TB positive status. Good. You're, yeah, you're well beyond that two-year high-risk period of time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks for calling us, Sarah. We appreciate you bringing up a really important point. You know, could you have this come back after you've had this positive skin test? And what is your risk? And speaking of risk, we had a shy caller who wanted to know teachers, if they have a lot of immigrant children in their classroom, are they at risk? We haven't really talked about that group exclusively, but they're teaching. Now it's open air, so that's good. Right. But same students for a year, eight mm-hmm. or so hours a day. Yeah. Are they in a risk category? They are in a small risk category, and that's one reason why the Department of Education, again, had, had them required to be tested before they are employed uh, in the in the school system. Um, most kids who catch TB 
uh, and, and develop active disease are not contagious. Their illness is a little bit different than older children, teens, and adults. So the younger kids, elementary school kids, rarely, rarely have contagious TB, uh, although we do see cases in, in, our, in our elementary school population, rare for them to be contagious. Older kids, probably more the teenagers, can develop illness like adults where they can cough up TB germs and be contagious. We don't see as many cases in the high school. We have done testing where we've looked at the classrooms, the teachers, the staff, the other students in that classroom, fortunately have not seen transmission in the classrooms. Where I see more students developing TB disease is actually in our college uh, population. Yeah, and you're, we require testing right now. Um, all of the students that I'm aware of uh, that I've treated over the last five years have been foreign-born. They, most of them were foreign students uh, coming from their respective countries. Um, and TB likes uh, stress affects our immune system. Probably you've had talks about stress and its effect on the body. Well, it affects your immune system too. And I think um, a lot of folks that are under stress are more likely to have the TB become active. And I think college students entering this country for the first time uh, probably under it's quite probably a bit of stress. probably a bit of stress. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. No transmission in those settings either, though. Yeah. So. If you are a parent or if you are a student and you get a letter that says someone in your class has been diagnosed as TB positive and has active disease, what should you do? I think you need to get more information. You need to find out what's going on. Typically, when there's that kind of situation, we usually have a meeting at the school so that parents can ask questions. There have been a few cases in the country where uh, they don't do as much skin testing as we do. They all of a sudden do skin testing because of a case, and they find out a lot of people have positive skin tests, but a lot of the students are foreign-born and would have had positive skin tests. doesn't mean that there's all these new cases of TB from that one student. But um, I think it's still a good idea to figure out, was my child exposed? And then say, what are you planning to do? If there's enough risk, are you going to test? And make sure that your student is there for the testing and for the reading. And one problem with the skin test is you do the test and you got to read it two or three days later. It's kind of time intensive. And then, because you may not have, res- if you got infected, you may not have your skin test show positive at first, we have to wait a couple of months and go back in. And do a repeat test and assume that the second test would be the more accurate test, accurate test yeah. to if look at. If the first test is negative, yeah. Are we always going to use PPD or are we going to get a little bit fancier as time goes on? We have some other tools now, and people may have been hearing about a blood test. There's actually a couple of blood tests out there. The problem is none of them are perfect. There is no perfect test for inactive TB. We're doing much better with the active TB part, but no good test. There are some tests that can be used, are going to be helpful in some folks. Young children that have recently had a BCG vaccine, which is used in a lot of developing countries to prevent TB from severe TB disease, um, can sometimes cause a positive skin test in that child. And so for kids that have come here and get a test, um, that test may not be that accurate. And before making a decision about treating that child for six to nine months with preventive medicine, sometimes a blood test is helpful. 
one of the blood tests called quantiferon gold will not be positive if that child's skin test was positive just because of BCG. So if all you've had is BCG exposure and you've never been around a TB germ, your quantiferon test most of the time will be negative. And that's kind of useful information. Why don't we use the BCG vaccine? I mean, I don't think we ever will in the United States. And some of the theories I've heard have been that way we can track TB in the U.S. because if the whole country had this vaccination, it would be very difficult to track if anyone had active TB. But is there a reason why we don't use BCG? Is there a reason why other countries do? Yes. And and, and the biggest reason is we just don't have enough TB. Uh, the vaccine really, it doesn't protect everybody from getting TB disease. It protects young children from getting disseminated TB. In other words, TB going to the brain, meningitis, life-threatening uh, disease in young, young children. So if you have a community with lots of TB in it, then you want to protect your most vulnerable, and that's your, your young children. And most kids get a dose at birth. And sometimes they go on to get other doses. Uh, Japan would give at school entry and a few years after that. Japan actually used a skin test. They'd give the PPD skin test. If it was negative, they'd give you another dose of BCG. So I think a lot of our Japanese students with positive skin tests may be positive because of the BCG, although Japan still has cases of active TB disease and we do see uh, immigrants, or folks that have lived in Japan, who develop active TB here in Hawaii. So, how do you know what to do if you're if you're coming here? If you're coming for, let's say, you're a student, or even if you just happen to be coming here as an immigrant from Japan, and you have a positive PPD, and you know you've had BCG vaccine. Should we just attribute it to that? No. Is that where you just do an X-ray, make sure it's negative? What is the next step? Well, the first thing is rule out active TB. So do the, the symptom check, get an x-ray. Symptom check, x-ray. X-ray. If you think that this person has had very low risk for exposure, I would probably get one of the uh, blood tests. You know, they're, they're not widely available. We have difficulty getting them for neighbor islands because of the amount of time, short period of time that the blood has to be handled by the laboratory. And it's not feasible yet at most of the neighbor islands. But if the person is willing to pay for a kind of expensive test, a couple of hundred dollars, to know whether or not it, it, it doesn't rule in or rule out latent TB, but it's another piece of information to help us judge that person's risk. So um, if I had a student with a positive, maybe 10 millimeter, just barely positive skin test, negative quantiferon, negative x-ray, I would probably say, no, that's probably a false positive skin test result. You probably don't have latent TB infection. If you wanted to be sure and cut your risk further, you could take preventive medicine. Now, once you have a positive PPD test, you will always have a positive PPD? Well, that's what we tell folks. That's not always the way it is, <laughs> however. If, if your skin test was falsely positive, either because of the solution used or because of some other kind of reaction in your body, then later skin tests might be negative and then become positive again. It's, it's really funny. The blood tests will do the same thing. They were looking at hospital workers, so a population that needs to be screened. And 
their tests would shift between negative and positive real close to the same, but where you drew the line is what's positive, what's negative. Sometimes they were negative, sometimes they were positive, and it just made everyone want to tear their hair out. So we're just starting to use these. We're not quite sure how much to trust them. They can be negative when somebody's immune system isn't active or working real well, even when somebody has active TB. So there's there's nothing perfect. We have to kind of, we need some, we need to work with them a little bit longer. The more we know, the more we realize we just don't know. Don't know. We don't have all the answers. There is a website, and I didn't bring it with me today, but for healthcare providers especially, it's really helpful. It kind of has taken all the information we have about latent TB and skin test results and countries, and and it puts puts them all together. Did they have an old scar on there, actually, that could have been old TB disease? How big was their skin test result? Um, where were they from? How How old are they now? Um, did they get BCG at birth? Did they get more than one dose? They put all this information and come up with a number, your risk of active TB disease for the rest of your life is 10% or 15% or somebody with the old scars, maybe 40% chance of active TB in the future versus your risk of illness, mostly liver disease, from the medication. So it's a real useful tool for us. We've kind of based some of our policies or where we'd like to go with some of our policies on on that kind of information. And it's a nice tool to a doctor for somebody to say, look, you know, you're U.S. born, never had BCG, small skin test result, probably don't have latent TB or your risk is very, very low. So we're moving towards more specific diagnostic testing, hopefully in the near future. Instead of just saying everybody who has a positive skin test should take medication, here's the people that are really at risk of active TB in the future and should be should strongly consider taking the medication. And by focusing down on folks that really need that person whose mom was in Liahi 40 years ago, had that exposure at home, We can really spend time educating those patients and give them the kind of care and information that they need. Well, and that's what we were hopefully doing here today is giving people a bit more information about what are your risks. It's greater than you might think for certain individuals and less for others. So I hope we did answer some people's questions about what to do. I want to thank you for being with us on the show today and sharing your expertise with us on The Body Show. Thank you very much. Enjoyed being here. Good. Thank you. Dr. Elizabeth McNeil is one of the TB doctors over at the TB branch control area, and she is gracious enough to be on our show today on a holiday. We hope that you've had a good Memorial Day yourself. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. Thank you.